This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here on this final day of the Socialism 2022 conference. Great to see the room so packed. Uh, My name is Danny Postel. I'm a member of Internationalism from Below, um, which you'll be hearing more about in a moment. Um, But welcome to our panel, Socialist Internationalism Comes from Below. Internationalism from Below is a network of internationalist organizers, researchers, and writers that builds connections of solidarity and cultivates cross-movement learning among emancipatory struggles of working and oppressed peoples throughout the world. We oppose all forms of state and imperial violence, and we aim to provide an alternative to those elements of the left that whitewash the violence of repressive regimes. Some of the spirit uh, that animates internationalism from below is embodied in two stickers um, that we've been distributing at this conference, and we have more copies of them here. One of them says, anti-imperialism, as in, against all imperialisms. And the other one says, solidarity with people, not states. Which we also have in Spanish, solidaridad con los pueblos, no con los estados. I want to distribute these, actually. I'm just going to take a second and hand these out. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Ashley. Yes, these are for distribution. Um, Please do help yourselves and uh, find us. You can also download those for social media. on internationalism from below's Twitter and Facebook. Um, So one of the ways, one of the several ways that we cultivate cross-movement learning is through a series of political education forums that we host in partnership with Haymarket Books, the convening body of this conference, in their Haymarket Live series on YouTube, where we do a deep dive into a specific struggle and hear from activists on the ground and also in the diaspora. Recently, we've done forums on Sri Lanka, Yemen, Myanmar, Sudan, Ukraine, South Africa, Egypt, Iran, Thailand, Nigeria, and Belarus. These are all archived on Haymarket's YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And to find out about upcoming events, which we do on an ongoing basis, to find out about forthcoming forums in this series, you can follow Internationalism from Below on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, so today we're going to hear from three folks connected to our network. Promise Lee, 
is an activist and writer from Hong Kong who's based in Los Angeles. He engages in left-wing international solidarity work through the Lausanne Collective and internationalism from below. He also does tenant organizing in Los Angeles Chinatown as part of Chinatown Community for Equitable Development. And he's also a member of the U.S. socialist organization Solidarity, which publishes the excellent magazine Against the Current. And I should mention that Solidarity is a co-sponsor of this panel today. So thank you to David Finkel and the other comrades from uh, Solidarity for their uh, partnership on this forum today. Andrea Sempertegui is an assistant professor of politics at Whitman College in Washington State and a founding member of the anti-extractive collective Comunalisis, based in Quito, Ecuador. Her, her work focuses on indigenous politics, environmental and feminist movements, struggles over territory and natural resource extraction, and decolonial thought in Latin America. Shiem Galian is a U.S.-born, grown, and based Syrian writer interested in anti-war communications from within empires like the United States, and she is a member of internationalism from below. Now, some of you may have noticed the name Bill Fletcher Jr. on the, the printed program, and um, Bill Fletcher is a very uh, close friend of internationalism from below who was originally going to be part of this panel and is still here in spirit but could not make it in person. So we're sorry about that, but we are confident that you will find um, our three speakers quite compelling. Um, a quick reminder before we get started that all conference attendees are required to wear masks, fully covering the nose and mouth, while indoors in conference spaces, including hallways and meeting rooms. Speakers from the front of our sessions may remove their masks in order to deliver their presentations, but only while actively speaking. And audience members are still required to wear masks, even while asking questions or making comments. The mask policy is in place to protect all of us, especially the immunocompromised from the risk of contracting COVID-19. Promise. Can folks hear me? This mic? Yes. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, thanks, Danny, and I want to thank my internationalism from below comrade Isaac Miller for thinking through my remarks uh, with me today. And in my remarks, I'll aim to do two things. First, articulate what kind of imperialist system that we are fighting against and what type of movements that can resist it and build the conditions for a better world. For some socialists, the decline of U.S. hegemony into a so-called multipolar world in which power becomes distributed among different national poles through different various nation-states as one camp against the U.S. empire in itself creates the condition for a revolutionary struggle. But as the late Samir Amin said in 2006, the challenges with which the construction of a real multipolar world is confronted are more serious than many may think. And Amin's circumspection is prudent. Sixteen years since that quote, the world has moved closer to multipolarity while we see independent power of workers across the board smashed by states of all stripes. Russia continues its assaults on Syria and Ukraine, financially supported by its plunders in regions like Sudan, joining Western imperialists. Xi Jinping earlier this year reassured investors in Davos that China will continue to let the market play a decisive role in resource allocation, this is a direct quote, while, quote, upholding the multilateral trading system with the World Trade Organization at its center. In other words, the redistribution of imperial power toward other poles or camps on the global stage without strong independent movements in each region 
only reshapes the content of global imperialism while maintaining its overall form. Today's multipolar imperialism represents an intensification of this world system, sketched out by Nikolai Bukharin in the 1910s, which see the internationalization of finance capital and the development of national capitalist groups as two sides of the same process. While national economic blocs have increasingly sidelined in favor of multinational institutions, we see the strengthening of, work, of the power of nation states to facilitate finance capital and further containing the working class. This deeper intertwining of state and capital enables new and more complex dynamics between ruling elites. Even as value transfer from core to periphery remains intact, we can now witness multiple geographies of inter-imperial relations, including cycles or overlaps of collaboration and competition between different sectors of the ruling class. Now joined by an often invisibilized class of institutional investors, state elites draw from more sophisticated technologies of oppression and control across geopolitical blocks, leading to an uneven development of global authoritarianisms or the expansion of what some call competitive authoritarianisms to counter independent and popular movements. So socialists today must account for how imperialism operates in these new expressions and understand how, as Salar Mohansi writes, imperial relations is always conditioned and propelled by a plurality of other often contradictory forces. And thus we should update how and where we can locate expressions of imperialism in these new configurations of state and capital. For one, China has been integrating its organs within neoliberal multilateral institutions themselves, approving imperialist Western-led policies with its high voting power on the IMF, which comes into tension with its fiery rhetoric against the US and the West. And as political economist Patrick Vaughan observes, touted pro-global South programs like the New Development Bank co-finances co most of its projects with the same financial entities like the World Bank that it purports to challenge. Development study scholars like Elias Salami have noted how uneven and combined state capitalist development have become an increasingly preferred mode for nation states to help expand the operations of capital such that institutional investors are conscripted into the ranks of state institutions to manage labor power. This underexplored imperialist role of institutional investors and asset managers is complemented by rising authoritarian methods that are recycled by states across geopolitical blocks. And this is how we can understand how, for example, China has directly built upon the US's war on terror paradigms from incorporating former Blackwater associates into Xinjiang security centers to adopting Israeli counterinsurgency methods against Palestinians to police Uyghur and ethnic minorities. And these technologies are recycled back to other countries, including the US itself, right, for racial profiling and surveillance domestically here. And this is not too much to explore in detail here, but one thing is for sure. Movements that can adequately counter the forces of imperialism require organizing against regimes across geopolitical blocks. And David McNally reminded us on Saturday, right, that socialists should not be supporting any side of rivaling centers of capitalist accumulation. And I would even add that none of such centers can be disentangled from one another at all. When we say that we must combat U.S. imperialism, we must ask ourselves what counts as U.S. imperialism or empire today. Scaling back militarization is an important step. But what about Western corporations, asset managers, and other investors? and other investors that are welcomed freely across the world, including by the U.S.'s so-called enemies. All these details can be terribly complicated, but as my internationalism from below comrade Ramakadami mentioned to me once, they seem opaque precisely 
because the ruling class doesn't want us to understand where the real sources of power are. This requires doing the work to learn about the new expressions of imperialism, unlike the simplified binaries offered to us by capists, those who place faith in a mystical, anti-imperialist cap against the U.S. And as Marxists, we must endeavor to demystify a terrain of complexity so that we can rally mass movements around an anti-imperialist program that actually addresses material conditions. And from this analysis of imperialism, we can imagine what a genuinely democratic movement against it can look like, an asymmetrical coalition of different anti-authoritarian political forces, marked by no uniform political composition, including, but not limited to, indigenous resistance against transnational companies, the left-wing pro-democracy movements, radical forces within mass socialist parties, and so on. Socialists should uplift and connect these struggles to maximize room for an independent, anti-authoritarian mass politics. And just as we do not hold on to a rigid definition of authoritarianism, such a coalition of anti-authoritarian movements should not be conceptualized in utopian terms. Efforts by the U.S. Empire to assert influence from NATO military support to National Endowment for Democracy grants have continued to abound. How then can we locate independent forces to support? In such cases, we must define independence not as a zero-sum game, since no such can exist in geopolitics, but as a spectrum. Where can we locate the freest sites for movements to act and expand their power and capacity under the least coercive conditions in each precise historical or regional conjuncture? The way to resist this new instantiation of multipolar imperialism is to objectively analyze where and in what forms independent mass movements emerge today and not bank on the power of any nation state or camp. The painful defeat in Chile yesterday should serve as a sober political reminder to us that any political gains by the working class must be vigilantly defended by strengthening working class movements regardless of geopolitical camps or parties. And thus, we must be open to new forms of working class and popular mass organization grounded on a materialist analysis of objective conditions and forces. One cannot preempt what these forces would look like beyond unpacking each struggle on its own terms, especially when reactionary forces are present in different sides of the conflict. This means recognizing that struggles from Hong Kong to Chile to Sudan develop in strikingly different terms, and that in all instances socialists should focus on cultivating forces as independent as possible from the political leadership of bourgeois, uh, of bourgeois national liberation movements. And at every turn, we must out-organize reactionary outfits and mass movements and not remain silent on or defend state repression of these movements as a whole. So I'll end my remarks here with this. Capism, or worse, open apologia for authoritarian governments is ideological cancer for the left. Capism not only fails to grasp the logic of imperialism today, but throws different movements under the bus. It's anti-internationalism. And it's, and it's unfortunately prevalent among spaces in the socialist left, like the DSA International Committee, and even among the luminaries of the left, from Noam Chomsky to Vijay Prashad. Socialists should not only critique openly these tendencies, but organize positive infrastructures of solidarity for workers around the world, global campaigns to abolish Ukrainian debt, alongside that of the debt in Global South against Russian imperialism, global debts against war on terror paradigms, aid for Uyghurs and Afghan refugees, global campaigns to extend the BDS campaign to include Hong Kongers, Tibetans, Taiwanese, etc., to include Chinese companies, to 
generally show solidarity with Palestinians. He made campaigns against asset managers, BlackRock, institutional investors, a key anti-war priority. And the list of opportunities simply go on and on and on and on. So I ask folks here today, do we want to fight for the countless political possibilities enabled by consolidating behind a third camp for and by the working class, or the limited dogma and dead ends of capitalism? Thanks. next speaker, for those who just came in and may have missed my introduction, our next speaker is Andrea Sempertegui. Thanks, Danny. Thanks, Promise. Uh, happy Labor Day, everybody. Um, so I would like to start with a small parenthesis. Um, this day also commemorates uh, Indigenous Women's uh, Day. And the history of uh, this commemoration is important not just because of political correctness, but because it tells the story of an indigenous Aymaran fighter uh, who uh, fought uh, the Spanish Empire, uh, Bartolina Sisa. Bartolina Sisa was uh, killed almost 300 years ago by the Spanish rule, and she and her partner, uh, Tupac Atari, uh, they uh, mobilized and fought and led one of the most uh, Important uh, uh, struggles and, uh, and uh, yeah, struggles and fight against Spanish rule. She was uh, brutally killed on this date, uh, 239 actually 239 years ago. Um, and the purpose of this rebellion uh, that she led was to uh, implement indigenous-led uh, uh, self-rule. Um, the thing is that her struggle and the struggle of uh, Tupac Atari inspired uh, later struggles and later movements. Uh, so in Bolivia, you have nowadays the Bartolina Sisa movement, which is a movement uh, like a, a union of indigenous peasant women. And they had a very crucial role in uh, protesting and organizing uh, different uh, actions against uh, the coup state of Yanin Añez. Um, so with this story, uh, I want to show you that um, anti-colonial struggles from before and from today, and especially these movements, uh, are the ones who are fighting against colonial and capitalist rule, and that it's very important as internationalists uh, to understand their importance and to support them. Um, and it's in this spirit that I will share some of the work uh, and analysis I, uh, I've been like uh, producing in the last uh, months uh, around or about mobilizations in Ecuador and about this importance of being in solidarity with these movements. And I hope that this kind of situated analysis gives you a, like a zoom in into the importance of uh, uh, strengthening these movements because uh, at the end of the day, these also are the movements that mobilize on the streets against uh, against uh, fascist forces uh, that are really uh, taking over uh, different countries around the world, but especially in Latin America, as we as we know, right? Um, so um, I, I like my my analysis comes mostly from my uh, political organizational work with the anti-extractive collective uh, Comunalisis. Uh, and uh, we are a small collective of uh, journalists, artists, communicators, scholars located in Ecuador. I'm uh, from all my comrades, I'm the only one who, who is here, uh, who is outside of Ecuador. And our main goal is to bring a link between or a connection between um, indigenous uh, and peasant-led uh, mobilizations and movements against the expansion of oil and mining projects. Uh, 
in the especially in the Amazon and in the uh, in the highlands of Ecuador, and to uh, connect uh, those struggles and those demands uh, with the peoples in the cities, not only in Ecuador but in other parts of the world, so that. Uh, they understand, first of all, the, the impacts of these projects. Uh, when we are talking about uh, mega mining projects, we're talking about huge projects that have, in the last years, made uh, huge amounts of land profitable. Uh, that means removing uh, entire mountains, removing uh, entire rivers. Like the, the social environmental impact of these of these projects are huge. And the money that stayed with the states, in contrast to other extractive industries like oil, is very minimal. So uh, we try to produce uh, uh, certain um, um, materials so that people uh, understand uh, these effects. We also try to bring a link between these uh, extractive industries and uh, neoliberal austerity politics, uh, financialization, and also financialization not as this abstract concept, but to really make clear like the very material effects of finance and how that, that looks really on the ground and how that operates, how uh, to make profitable bigger amount, bigger uh, extensions of land uh, is also not a matter of like uh, geology but really of, of these uh, amounts of land like being constructed and being sold right in the financial market. Um, and uh, so it is through this work that uh, I've been following, following the different trajectories of the left within my country, and especially the environmental left. Uh, and for this, it's important to, to know a little bit of the, of the history of Ecuador, which is uh, unique in its, in, its, you know, in its own terms, but also relates to the, the history of uh, other Latin American countries that saw left-wing think-type governments come to power right in the 2000s. Uh, but in the 1990s, uh, especially um, in Ecuador, it was the indigenous movement, uh, the most important political force in our country, uh, where all the other movements orbit around. Uh, we as a small collective, you know, when there's a strike, we pretty much acknowledge that the leadership of this movement is crucial and that we need to join forces in, 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 in ways that we can and orbit around it. But the indigenous movement in the 90s, was the most important movement in stopping the advancement of uh, neoliberal adjustment policies in Latin America. It removed uh, different governments from power, uh, but it also created the conditions to, to imagine uh, an alternative to neoliberalism. So they not only resisted and mobilized on the street, but the indigenous movement has been such an intellectual force and uh, a political force in offering alternatives to it and those proposals were adopted in the uh, 2008 Constitution of Ecuador. And also the mobilization and the political uh, power of organizing of this movement created the conditions for a left government to come to power with the promise of ending um, neoliberal uh, uh, policies. Um, Unfortunately, and of course, you know, that, that's like a question that it's, it's very complicated uh, after you mobilize for such a long time on the streets and then you have uh, a left government that adopts many of your proposals, uh, but how are you going to relate to that government? Are you going to keep your autonomy? Are you going to govern with that government? Are you going to combine both things? So at the beginning that was very unclear and the indigenous movement, even though it wasn't part of the political ruling party, uh, was part of the Constituent Assembly, but tensions started to arise. 
and the indigenous movement uh, uh, became very critical uh, towards the kind of um, uh, state-led uh, transformational like plan of the government which pretty much relied on the extraction of natural resources. Now, of course, the colonial history of Ecuador puts us in that position of being an oil-dependent economy. And in nowadays, like the last years, a mining, uh, or increasingly becoming a mining country. Um, but uh, the, 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 one of the biggest lines of confrontation between the government was not only the extractive, uh, you know, the extractive confront or confrontation around uh, natural resource extraction projects, but the way in which the government uh, wanted, in a certain way, to either absorb movements into uh, into its rule, like uh, I'm, I'm talking about strategies of cooptation, of uh, building parallel uh, indigenous organizations. Uh, also, uh, a lot of people were criminalized, persecuted. Like in 2015, we had uh, approximately like 1,000 indigenous leaders like criminalized by the state. Uh, also, uh, we have the opening of our country to mega mining projects. The first mega mining project is a copper open pit mine called Mirador in the south of the country, which is operated uh, by the uh, Chinese company EXA. And it's in that context of confrontation that we see the first three uh, deaths uh, of indigenous Shuar leaders that are still nowadays not, uh, there, there hasn't been an investigation, there hasn't been justice for these, for these leaders. Um, and it is in this context that uh, the, the, there, there, there is a huge divide created between these two lefts. And you know, I would really recommend you that you read the book by Thierry Franco's Resource Radicals, where she really like, maps out these kind of two lefts that built during that period. Um, and uh, and may also the comeback of the right or like you know the 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 right assuming power of like a, 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 a like a, a such a fast development after the Korea government of the pink tide uh, ended. So um, how much time do I have? Another two three minutes. Two three minutes, perfect. So it is in this in this context of divide that we have uh, now a banker as a as a president. That's the tragedy of, of this you know left divide. Um, uh, we had in the last uh, presidential elections 2021 uh, uh, a banker who really was never successful in previous elections, uh, but who won the presidency because the left, especially the left. Uh, represented by the indigenous movement and the left uh, represented by the party of the pink tie government of Rafael Correa through the uh, candidacy of uh, Andes Arauz uh, couldn't come to terms because of this big divide. And one of the reasons for that, um, and of course I'm, I don't want to idolize the role of movements and say like you know the indigenous movement didn't uh, didn't also had a responsibility in this like victory of the right, but uh, for movements, it was important that the Korea government would acknowledge some of the violence, at least, that it was pertained against them. But that didn't happen, and we had a banker, we have a banker as president that now uh, is advancing a tremendous neoliberal policies, uh, tremendous uh, austerity policies, and like linked to the uh, further expansion of uh, mining and oil. So with this, I just uh, wanted to make, or why we wanted to build some connection with what that this story means or could like, uh, you know, teach us about internationalism. First, the importance to be in solidarity with movements like the indigenous movements, uh, like the indigenous movement that, uh, and that does not mean being an antagonism, complete antagonism with left governments, especially from the global south, uh, 
we need to denounce like coups like the one that happened in Bolivia, but we cannot lose sight that it's precisely these movements that have done tremendous work to bring these left uh, governments to power, and that they shouldn't be weakened, uh, co-opted, absorbed, assimilated, but they should be strengthened because at the end of the day, they're also going to be the ones that are going to mobilize uh, also when the right comes, and that, that happened in Bolivia, they're going to mobilize when the right uh, is, uh, is threatening our, our uh, countries. Um, another thing I wanted to mention is that uh, extractive violence happens in connection with economic and political violence and that internationalists should not separate both or idealize pink tide rule or be indifferent to this production of sacrifice songs. And I think it's very important for the left, especially the environmental eco-socialists left here, uh, not to take the, not to let the liberal NGO complex take over these like uh, links of solidarity and to really, you know, uh, really look for, for what these movements are doing. There was a massive strike in Ecuador in June 2022 where the two demands were like, like uh, stop neoliberal uh, policies like uh, by this government and also like a moratorium of oil and mining projects. And, and I think that's very that's very unique. So I think with this note, I would just would just end, and I would like uh, love to talk more about uh, this uh, this particular case and the Q&A. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Andrea. Our final speaker is Shiem Galian. Thanks, Jenny. Um, thanks, everyone, for being here this morning. Um, and it's an honor to be here. The last 10 years were really hard um, in the United States, uh, you know, with the 2008 economic collapse and kind of everything that's like followed since then. Um, so Promise really touched upon the kind of landscape of imperialism today. And Andrea gave us some history um, to, to share kind of like internationalism isn't something that we're just like starting today, but it's just an inherent reality of politics. Um, so I wanted to start off uh, by asking the audience a question. So we are internationalism from below, and I wanted to focus on that from below part, and I wanted to ask the audience, y'all, um, raise your hand if you're local, if you consider yourself local to only one place. So I think I see like not eight, nine hands, maybe close to ten hands. Okay, that's interesting. Um, raise your hand if you consider yourself a local to more than one place. And when I say local, I mean like when you go to that city, you feel like you know it, you know people there, you don't have to stay in a hotel. Uh, okay. Okay, the people who had raised their hand for the one are also now raising their hand again. And a lot of people, not, this is for the recording, a lot of people have raised their hand. Raise your hand if you're local to more than one place, but you know that one of those places you don't have access to because historically you were forced to migrate from that place and you, you were like cut off from that. So like you don't actually know specifically where that locality is. So, I, so there's like three hands in the air, four. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to start off with that exercise because I, uh, it's, I think, you know, I spend my time thinking a lot about narratives and identity, and I actually saw a TED talk 
by a woman from Ghana who um, said that it's like actually really helpful when people ask you where you're from to instead reframe it as like where are you local to. And I think that uh, diaspora people, so like my family immigrated into the United States, so I am part of the Syrian diaspora. Um, I think we kind of inherently feel like we belong to more than one place, but I want to challenge that a bit and kind of poke at that and say like, I think a lot of us know what it feels like to belong to more than one place. Um, and what I think is interesting is, um, raise your hand if you're against border imperialism. Okay, so uh, for the record, a lot of people raise their hand for the next <laughs> So I think, you know, over the past 10 years, uh, speaking about Syria, it was just really hard to kind of see the limits that people were willing to go um, in being consistent with their ethics and things that they believe in. Um, so I want to point out that, that transnationalism or internationalism um, it itself is not a positive or negative term. There's a lot of internationalism and transnational activity that is not aligned with my ethics. So I think the most important thing is to focus on like the shared ethics that we have across borders. Um, and I want to talk about, like, a lot of you laughed when I, when I just said that offhand comment. So I have a feeling that this audience kind of knows what I'm talking about, about like why it's, it's been hard to talk about this. So. I want to spend some time talking about like the, the limits of how far this conversation goes within the United States and why that might be. Um, so for some background, um, I work in marketing. <laughs> um, I used to work at an anti-war organization and I watched it implode and I was just like, oh my god, I need to pivot. Um, this, is, <laughs> this is really painful. Um, and so I work, yeah, like cut and dry capitalism, and, but I, I'm also a writer, and I, I uh, you know, if you're like a Tolkien fan, if you're, you know, um, a Dune fan, you understand that like when you build a world, the characters within that world, you know, the script has to follow, the, the dialogue has to follow the logic of the world. Um, so I like to bring a little bit of that in with me in my like corporate job. Uh, I like to like play around a little bit with, um, you know, in this like capitalist setting. And I work at an online school where um, where the promise that we're making, you know, to the market is that we're reimagining school. We want to reimagine the dynamics in the classroom. We want to challenge the power dynamics in the classroom. And as someone who works with brand, I have to take that narrative and come up with messaging and et cetera. And so I'll tell my manager, and I've told the CEO, um, and I've said, hey, so we have this brand narrative. Um, and as you know, we're a settler colony. Um, and settler colonies have at least three facades. And each of those facades has its own brand narrative. And I just want to know, like, which brand narrative does our brand narrative fit into, just so I can figure out the messaging. And they're just like, what? <laughs> And since I kind of use the whole like we're school and we're we're, supposed, we're like for knowledge and and um, I use that to kind of be like oh well I'm allowed to say you know like but it's but it's true and so I think it, like uh, first of all I'm assuming that a lot of us in the audience are local to some place 
within the United States, at least one of the places that we're local to is within the United States. And I think what's really hard um, when talking about internationalism or transnationalism um, from within the United States is that not only are we an empire, but we're also a settler colony. And so there are actually indigenous nations who are like, they, you know, the U.S., they would be considered part, they should be considered part of like that uh, internationalism because they are their own nation. Um, and I think what's hard, what's kind of hard to, what I would like to see synthesized more in these spaces is uh, how do we kind of see the U.S. empire settler colony for what, is, for what it is, this giant kind of uh, giant object, uh, which, you know, in physics, giant objects warp the space around them. Uh, how can we, like, really see it in order to not react to it, but, like, determine our own center of gravity to start building something there to have things rotate around that center of gravity. Um, so, was there something? Oh, yeah, okay. And I think the, so I think that, that the settler colony empire thing, the kind of the, the, I feel like if we synthesized the beast of the empire kind of in that, it would, it would make it, uh, less hard. I don't know that some of the pushback that we see, I think, comes like part of the pushback kind of stems from there. And then I think that there's another, there's like another key reason why there's a lot of contradictions in the pan left spaces within the within the empire when it comes to internationalism or transnationalism, and that stems from exceptionalizing narratives. Um, so let me kind of explain what I mean by that. So. Um, so part of the United States as a settler colony is that it like, I, I say like the greatest sleight of hand that the United States has ever done is to teach us in the second and third grade that there are 13 original colonies and then kind of drop that a little bit and like it just never, and so when you tell people like in my corporate, like, oh yeah, we're a settler colony. Um, so that means, you know, we're not like Korea, where like the language and the ethnicity and it's like all one like package, you know, it's not um, that, you know, people think we are the best country, you know, there's this narrative of like the United States is the best country in the world, we have the best democracy. And that's, that's kind of tied, it's tied into um, hiding the fact that we're a settler colony and that we actually uh, are not democratic for indigenous people, we've like consistently like not one, like we've like the very concept of this country was, is like anti-black and anti-indigenous. Um, so, so there's like a spectrum of narratives about the United States that exceptionalize the United States. And on one end of the spectrum, we have narratives that feed into the United States as the best country in the world. And people in the pan left, uh, within the empire are really good at recognizing those narratives and it's actually like a big reason why people convert into our spaces because it's just so much gaslighting bullshit it does not make any sense uh, and this is a space where we can connect and feel a place of belonging 
um, against these narratives. And it, it's not even, I just want to also say that these narratives, it's backed by the, like, the U.S. state. It's like, it has state backing. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, there's another set of U.S. exceptionalizing narratives, which is that the U.S. is the absolute worst evil country in the world. And those set of narratives uh, are also backed by states, but not the United States. So like Russia, China, uh, Syria hired like a PR company. <laughs> the Assad regime hired like a PR company um, and like really capital, like really used these narratives in order to uh, cause confusion or like, like, t like take advantage of the confusion and, and really like capitalize on that, which has made it really hard for someone like me and I, I want to be transparent, I don't identify as a leftist, I'm not anti-left, but it's just been really hard to feel a place of belonging exactly. in, a, in a place, uh, in a space that, like, uh, it's been really easy and successful to take advantage of this other set of exceptionalizing narratives. Um, but the Socialism Conference has been really nice. It's been, like, <laughs> it's been really great to be here. Um, so I feel like I've, I'm kind of healing a little bit. But um, yeah, I think those two things, the kind of rec like reconciling or like kind of synthesizing what the beast is as a, as a settler colony and as an empire, recognizing that the experience of being local to more than one place is, is more common than we think, and also recognizing that we have different experiences with that locality. So some people like were like violated and not allowed to know where they were from. They were like t forcibly migrated. Um, and then I think the the other part is this kind of exceptionalizing, like being really good at only half of the story. And in a, and as a result, like kind of mirroring the beh behavior of people who exceptionalize the U.S. in other ways. Um, so thank you, thank you all for having us, and I'm going to pass it back to Danny. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.